I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start when you're in the middle of a story it isn't a story at all but only a confusion a dark roaring a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. I'm excited to share with you a new discovery who I'll be sharing more of in the coming weeks. This interview is an introduction into the wildly alchemical and mycelial perspective of Sophie Strand, who you'll be hearing more of in the coming weeks. Sophie Strand is a poet and essayist whose work focuses on the intersection of spirituality and ecology. Her writings seamlessly blend her profound learning and erudition on topics such as religion, mythology, and history with the language of mycelia, moss, and the microbiome. 
forming a truly mind-blowing mythopoeic synthesis that is truly re-enchanting. She's the author of numerous books of poetry, as well as a forthcoming book of essays to be published next year by Inner Traditions called The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans Species Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the Masculine. So, Sophie, thank you so much for you know coming on to have some conversation. Well, thank you for that introduction. It was definitely the most generous introduction anyone has given to me. I'm honored. And I'm glad that, you know, the mycelial connectivity of the webs um, drifted my spores in your direction. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a good way to put that. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. So let's let's just hop into it. I find that a lot of what you're doing, at least for me, speaks to this sort of re-enchantment idea and that your work is sort of, I mean, in, in framing, I guess, this whole issue of re-enchantment, I guess, if you buy the narrative that sort of with the rise of... Um, modernity, um, I guess you could say, though I guess it could even go back before that, there was um, kind of the replacing of storytelling and mythology with a new kind of framework that seemed to exercise the spirits uh, and kind of, you know, what, what what Weber called the disenchantment of the world. And of course, then that leads to disconnection, alienation, existential anxiety, or it can anyway, and things of that nature. And so one of the most profound issues for me is that question of like re-enchantment, um, bringing back into our engagement with the world a meaningful connection with myth, with archetypal language, with poetry, with metaphor, and deep narratives that kind of root us in, in narratives of meaning. So when I've read some of your stuff, I've come across a couple different instances that just like really speak to that for me. And so I'll, I'll just read one and, and then we can kind of dive in. But in one of your essays, um, you say, I think the fairies are back and they're even smaller. I think they got smaller, not in order to disappear, but in order to reappear in the new age of the true. In stories perfectly primed for our scientifically oriented brains, fairies are back under the crystalline gaze of the microscope and they have new names. I give you viruses, microbes, protozoa, fungi, tardigrades, also known as moss piglets, dust seeds, and other smalls so magical you must look through another eye in order to see them. And yeah, so I think that's sort of, for me, where a lot of uh, your work kind of lands is in this space of kind of re-enchantment and, and bringing back a sense of the of the magical to a world that is now, as you say, kind of in the in the domain of the true of this sort of scientific perspective that has historically had the the danger of of doing so much disenchanting. So I don't know if you wanted to talk to that a little bit and and say how you do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do always want to kind of complicate the idea of a preciousness of enchantment as being a necessarily beautiful or easy or physically pleasurable experience. And something I've been really drawn to is, you know, the whole practice and study of cultural somatics. I'm, you know, inspired by Dare Suwe's work, Tada Huzumi, and something I spent a long time studying, Second Temple Period Palestine, the end of the Bronze Age, this, the rise of monotheism. And a trend that I thought was very interesting was as you experience social strife as populations are dislocated from their ecologically situated oral storytelling and mythologies. And as war and genocide escalate, so do mythologies and spiritualities that prize the mind above the body, that create this artificial split between matter and spirit. 
And, you know, that gets grafted into Cartesian dualism. You know, it's still theology, even if it has different terminology. And so for me, the re-enchantment is more coming back into your body. And when your leg has been asleep for a really long time, coming back into your body, it stings, it pricks. It's not a necessarily beautiful experience. When you wake up, you know, especially in the psychedelic community right now, there's a kind of saccharine language that happens around eco-awakening. Like you're going to see a tree and realize it's awake and suddenly your behavior is going to change. But the truth is, and, you know, religious scholar Andy Fletcher really talks to this in a compelling way, is that, you know, Terrence McKenna said we needed 15% of the population to do psychedelics to have a change. I think we've reached that and we're not seeing a change in behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of people have had these very individually oriented psychedelic experiences that have not produced more ecologically conscious behavior. So the kind of eco awakening, the kind of reenchantment I'm thinking about is realizing that you've really harmed everything and that that harm is mirrored in your own body. So the re-enchantment that I'm trying to be curious about is the one that is ecstatic. It's marvelous. Everything is teeming with, you know, different ideas and umwelts, you know, that auxilian idea of a different sensory experience of the world. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because you also just have a, a really deep understanding of history. And I'd be curious to know what your view is where do you, how do you track that disenchanting process? Is there a, a particular era or epoch in which you locate it kind of beginning or even picking up steam or something like that? Uh, how would you describe the narrative of disenchantment? It's interesting. You said I was a poet and an essayist in my introduction, which was very generous, but I always have thought of myself as a fiction writer and the projects that I'm most obsessed with, you know, I have a book actually coming on 2023, which is an eco-feminist reimagining of the gospels. And so my approach to these inquiries, these backformings that are always going to fail to some degree, we're fictional. And for me, the story that seems interesting is what happens when we start getting cultivated by grasses? When we start drinking fermented beers and graveyard beers and making bread, that I've been thinking about fungal stories and how many different fungal stories there are. And as civilization and fermentation is being deeply braided together and as civilization almost being a narrative that's working through human beings, but that's fungal in nature. (laughs) And I'm not giving that a moral qualification. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but I do see the disenchantment really beginning to take place. Of course, you know, when we move from pictographs to phonetic ideographic language, when we start writing down stories, when oral storytelling that was adaptable and interchangeable starts becoming ossified, when you deracinate myths from their ecology and you try and um, disseminate them over wide groups of people. I do think that there's something about alphabetic language that begins to shudder our experience of what is possible. And I also think that cities, sessile communities, communities that don't change with the seasons and with the shifting migrations of animals and plants, there's something about staying still textually and physically. So you would almost locate it then, it sounds like back in the Bronze Age. and Oh, like, I think so. Okay. So for you... Gobli uh, Tepe, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so the idea isn't so much that, you know, a lot of people 
tend to locate that break with the rise of modernity and in the way that we think of modern versus pre-modern as sort of a massive bifurcation point. But in what you're talking about in sort of the narrative that you're you're telling is is that it goes far further back than that and sort of would separate more um, kind of almost like maybe indigenous and tribal societies versus uh, urban. Nomadic. Yeah. Nomadic societies, societies that don't stay in place that shift with the shifting climatological pressures. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then the question, I guess, is whenever there's these sorts of narratives of disenchantment and I think sort of presumed in those sorts of frameworks is that there is something lost, that there's something deeply valuable that needs to be regained or should be regained. Um, how do we go about doing that in a way that, I mean, you know, we're talking, we're on computers, we've got, you know, this technology here. Um, I think arguably, if you were to kind of put it to a mass vote and say, hey, who wants to jump back to, you know, pre-1500 or, you know, pre-2000 BC, there'd be a lot of resistance to that. So maybe it's, maybe that's just on us, <laughs> you know, like maybe that's the problem. But yeah, how would you, how would you um, try to navigate bringing what is valuable back into the world as it is today and going forward with a sense of enchantment then? I don't think there's any going back. I mean, as someone who has benefited and is alive because of modern medical technology, there's no going back. As someone whose professional career is facilitated by the web, there's no going back. There's no purity. And I, I think that these narratives that attempt to somehow reach a pure origin or, you know, these diets, the paleolithic diet, <laughs> they're, they're all fictional and they're, and they're all about control and trying to feel safe in a time when narratives are increasingly non-human, when the earth is really beginning to shape us in ways that we have managed to repress for a long time. And so I think I'm attracted to the idea of contaminated diversity and the work of Anna Singh, the anthropologist, and trying to make do to salvage, to salvage what we can, to use these rubble ecologies and create complicated, sometimes prickly communities of people who disagree, but perhaps grow food together in soil that's polluted, you know? I oftentimes pray to oyster mushrooms that can be taught how to digest, you know, cigarette butts and glyphosate. I'm not trying to purify myself and reach some like fictional paleolithic origin. I'm trying to learn how to digest and metabolize the increasingly complicated substances and interactions that are thrown my way. That's really cool. So one, I mean, that's, that's helpful. Cause like, yeah, I very much would agree that there isn't really any going back and that often these sorts of, you know, that nostalgic look back, that move is always highly romanticized and problematic yeah. in itself. And um, I think that there's actually a lot of pathology that can come about based in kind of, yeah, retroactive thinking and retroactive looking. Um, but then what, what you just said was interesting because it's sort of like um, you're sort of offering this kind of different set of analogies or different poetic metaphors for where we're at and what is needed, maybe to put it one way, that the kind of metaphor of purification or even some kind of, well, salvation or, or return a, that kind of eschatological, you know, like everything is cleansed and made new, right? Leaving that aside and seeking out a different metaphorical paradigm, which you're talking about digestion. And I mean, is that, a, is that a, a, one way to think about this is that maybe we just need new poetic paradigms to think about how, or to rethink salvation or purification or change or transformation? Yeah. I mean, one very 
compelling thing is that in moments where soteriological arguments start to bloom, where salvation and apocalyptic predictions arrive, so do increasing tracks about purity and cleanliness. And that's something that I've done a lot of research about is you see that again and again arise. That people get very, very worried about purity as the environment feels uncontrollable. So we start trying to worry about what we can control. <laughs> and it, it, it's really just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but it helps us to, it's like a grooming thing. It's like a neurotic <laughs> grooming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I mean, on a very personal level, I have an incurable genetic condition. So I, I've had to, on a microscopic level, queer the idea of progress and healing. And like, am I decaying? Like, am I breaking down? How does that map onto what everyone else is doing? And that actually has been an opening into different types of storytelling and thinking about how we could navigate what might be the end of human beings or might be the end of this particular way of being in civilizations. And yeah, I think for me, the compost heap is a really good metaphor, which is it's not a moment for purifying or for throwing things out. It's for throwing everything on and seeing what sprouts. Mm. And you, you never know. <laughs> That's why like, you know, people are always like, are you going to, because I've written a lot about masculinity and the myths of masculinity. People are always like, how do you get rid of toxic masculinity? And I want to say, you don't. You overwhelm it with other microflora you take a probiotic you know you throw other scraps on the food pile and eventually mm-hmm. it's not the only voice that's interesting because because when in some ways that sense of purity is like there's this one thing that something needs to be and then there's all this encrustation that needs to be removed so it's that one thing which yeah. ha- sort of has that kind of monoculture kind of ideology baked into it and you're yeah. saying it seems to me less like, let's not do that. Let's up the diversity. Let's, yeah. let's you know, taking that a little bit forward. Cause, cause what I'm interested in is sort of, you know, you write a lot about myth and, and, and explore mythology a lot. And one of my passions and interests is what is the role of myth today? And what myths, if any, do we need? And I'm wondering if sort of what you're talking about is, if not a narrative myth, it's at least a mythic framing, which is a a new framing within kind of deep ecological practice rather than this sort of ideological purity, monocultural sort of approach. Yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that topic. Yeah, I mean, I'm very inspired by the work of the poet and kind of interdisciplinary scholar Robert Bringhurst when he says that you know, myth personifies the elements to describe what's happening in the world while science just quantifies it. But equations and myths are pretty much the same thing. And so I'm interested in how can we use the science and the material that we have access to, to increase that enchantment, that marvel, and to instead of muting the world and working really hard to repress the animacy and the bumptiousness of everything around us to increase it. So I think myth can teach us how to be more ecologically awake, actually. And I think myth has always, you know, I think of Addis and Adonis and vegetal gods, that they were really acting as the violets, as the anemones, as, you know, the inundation of the Nile. Osiris represents the actual rhythms of a river. You know, Osiris teaches us how to think like an ecosystem. And I think that myths as being ecosystems, as being composites, holobionts of many different characters and social pressures 
can teach us how to interact in our life less as individuals and more as interstitially constituted intelligences. And how, what do you think it is about myth that, that you, like you mentioned personification, but is there something in the way that myth frames things that is more um, conducive to appreciating the deep ecological connections? I mean, maybe there's a distinction to be made between having a kind of embodied and intuitive and so profoundly connected unconscious appreciation of the ecological connections of everything and a kind of conscious and sort of a paradigm that comes out of scientific inquiry and investigation that, because what I was about to say was that, well, I mean, in many ways, science has, has provided us with the framework of, you know, cybernetics and, and, and network ecologies and, and yeah. all these things. Right. And yet, even before it was out of my mouth, I was realizing, of course, too, well, there's a difference between sort of being able to express all that on paper, kind of, you know, discursively and like living it. And so in some ways, that's kind of the disconnect right now is that we have so much of the kind of conscious, you know, expression of these ideas, but less and less kind of actual deep living of it. But yeah, I mean, how do you think myth offers this view that science isn't able to get at? Well, I think some science is. And I think that science is being conflated with a very narrow material reductionist viewpoint is to the detriment of an ecology of practices, as Isabel Stenkers argues for, which is, you know, this interdisciplinary melding of musicians and microbiologists and physicists. And, and, and you know, all of these different ways in are they're less truths and more interrogative practices. And the thing I am focusing on is less myth as this kind of idea of creating these important stories with these simplified elemental characters and more of ecological storytelling, which is how do we compost older ideas of myth with this new scientific information that's coming forward? So that's what I'm trying to attempt to do with my storytelling. Like something I was thinking about is, well, how would you let's say you took Tristan and Isolde to, and this is something I'm actually trying to do. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to walk the walk as well as talk the talk, which is you take the story of Tristan and Isolde, which are these two archetypal lovers that predate Arthurian myths and probably inspire them. And what if you put them inside a non-human ecosystem, a non-human narrative, which is the narrative of lichen, of fungi and algae and parasites and yeast coming together to form a whole new being. So what, what would a love story look like if it was operating alongside a narrative that wasn't human? And I, I think the thing is, I want to decenter human narratives, but that doesn't mean not having human characters. And in fact, I think sometimes the injunction against anthropocentrism is actually a covert attempt of material reductionism to keep us from believing that things matter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and actually, a certain kind of anthropocentrism is inherent in almost all storytelling which is in order to feel like something is alive, you have to feel like it's talking your language. So there's a certain kind of translation that happens. But if it inspires you to honor that being and to walk through your life with more tenderness and more care, then it's not a bad thing. So I, I think that taking human characters and putting them in more than human narratives is the kind of new myth that I'm interested in creating mm -hmm. and how those narratives can begin to show us that we are always inside of more than human narratives. We didn't invent stories. We arrived inside of them. Mm. What do you say? I mean, I find it to be an unfortunate and, and potentially perverse reaction to our 
ecological degradation and you know the anthropocene era which is some people will just say oh human beings we're awful we shouldn't even be here you know yeah (laughs) yeah i i think that's actually a very kind of simplistic approach and it's actually what people do when they don't want to solve a problem (laughs) and i actually think it's the most anthropocentric argument of all ecosystems are ingenious. Complex systems are always evading our mathematical or diagnostic abilities. You know, it's we we have a really hard time creating things as complicated as a puddle, you know, actually. And I think that if you look at the trophic waves, the saprophytic mushrooms, the spores coming out of the ground, creating the clouds that then drop rain down and create rainforests. And you look at all of these different cycles and all the different beings that are crucial to it, you realize that everything has an ecological niche. That, you know, bees are drinking the nectar and they're pollinating flowers along the way. The pollination is incidental. They're following their appetites. And I think that human beings have fallen out of their ecological niche, but that it's silly to believe that we don't have an ecological niche. Mm. It's silly to believe that the earth wouldn't have a purpose for us. And I think that the real question is, what is our ecological niche? Indigenous people are really good at having participatory, intimate relationships with landscape, where they tend landscape, they coppice trees, they actually increase the biodiversity of certain places. So what would it look like if we were the medicine instead of always taking the medicine? Yeah. And for me, that is precisely what I feel is what we need these myths for now. Yeah. Um, and then you're kind of in a you're in a logistical question, to put it, I guess, in kind of an <laughs> odd way. It's sort of like, what's yeah. the best way to deliver that medicine? And obviously, it doesn't have to be one particular thing. I think it could be many things. But it seems like what so many people stand in need of is a way to link their lives to their environment, to the world that they live in as a, as a balm for that alienation and that, you know, kind of uh, sense of meaninglessness. And in my view, the myths that we've inherited largely aren't up to that task, arguably, I'd like to get your view on that. And so then, then the question is, well, what, what's to be done about that? Do we reimagine old myths? Do we create new ones? And I also recognize that there's, there's a certain kind of pragmatism for the way that I think I tend to frame these things, which could be dangerous, but it's still there. It's sort of the sense of something is lacking. There's a need, there's a, there's a crisis. And what is missing seems to me to be this sort of thing that we're talking about. And at the same time, maybe that's not necessarily the best way to go about trying to to create something that should probably be just entirely organic. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. I have lots of thoughts. I have no definite answers. I'm really living the question. I find that we are so genetically threaded with certain types of belief systems you know, Christianity is baked into pretty much everything we do in a way that a lot of people who consider themselves to be atheists don't understand. And I think that for that reason, it's important to take some of these myths to reroute them and their real ecology. Take someone like Jesus, who's been deracinated, translated through the empire, then assassinated him. Take the two years of a very young rabbi's life and then like try and like make that work for 2000 years across the whole globe. 
it's interesting to take someone like that and to look at what they might've actually been saying inside of their real ecosystem. And then to ask the question, not to say, how does this myth work for me, but what is it teaching me about my own storytelling? So for me, someone like Rabbi Yeshua is a nature-based storyteller is talking to Galilean farmers about Galilean farming techniques. <laughs> and, you know, he says the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which was an invasive species and which was pernicious and hated by Galilean peasants. So he's, he's kind of giving a neat, like a paleolithic, pre-neolithic, anarchic piece of advice there saying like, you know, trust the environment more, don't try and control it as much. I mean, there are many different ways in, but the truth is that when we abstract that metaphor, that story from its ecosystem, we lose its piss. And so for me, Rabbi Yeshua says, write nature-based parables based on the species outside your door. So that's the new myth-making. I'm very interested in the local. And I think that there's a kind of plastic environmentalism that's being really widely disseminated right now, where you have to understand everything. You have to advocate for the charismatic forest, the charismatic mammals and animals. You have to help save that ocean far away. And yeah, that does matter. But it's also really important to understand like the plants in your backyard, to advocate for the things that you love, that you encounter every day. And I do think that local storytelling, getting to know the beings that you actually touch and see is probably the most important way into a new type of storytelling. How do we do that these days when like the communities of people that I'm closest to are people I've never met <laughs> locally, right? This is my question. This is my question really truly, especially because in the past like 2 years, the most interesting people in my life live countries away. Yeah. Yeah. Same. No, it's a very I this is something I'm I'm holding today. And like was talking about last night because I had friends come and visit from far away. And I was like, oh, thank God to be with you. But we just don't live near each other. I don't know. I do not know the answer to that question. Something I've been really <laughs> perplexed by is I would think at my core that I hate the internet and technology. And yet it has done great service for me mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and brought me great joy and intimacy and creative connections. And I'm really interested in that. I, I don't know what to make of it. So, you know, I have a very animist practice and I summon beings every morning and I've started summoning the internet. <laughs> mm. I've started being like, I don't know what you are. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're doing, but you kind of seem like a mycelial network and you're definitely doing some magic for me. Yeah, I, I do think that along with the humans are a virus, there's also this idea that nature is this thing that's apart from us that we have to re-enter. When the truth is that coronavirus is nature. People are like, how can I reconnect with nature? I want to be like, are you afraid of coronavirus? Like, that's nature. You know, you, your gut biome is nature. Your shit is nature. <laughs> and technology is nature. And it could be thinking in ways that we feel like we're controlling, but we're not. Mm. Gosh, there's so many ways uh, I'd love to pick up on all these different threads. So it's hard to pick one. Um, One of the questions I do have, though, is that there's this element to all of this, which I deeply resonate with, which is a a sense of embodiment, embeddedness, you know, that deep appreciation for the tactile and that like when I first started getting into gardening, I would often use the phrase, you know, that's good, clean dirt, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's just something about that loamy messy, squishy reality, which is like, it's the good stuff. And so, 
you know, in, in philosophical and theological conversations, there's often this sort of dichotomy or even dualism of sort of the imminent and the transcendent. And for many years, I've been really doing a deep dive into the imminent, which is what I've, you know, all that stuff I was just talking about. But over the past year or so, I've really been also been deeply interested in these mystics like Plotinus and, and you know, doing meditative practice and exploring, you know, the cultivation to different higher states and things like that. So the question, I guess, is sort of how do you, what, what's the role of the transcendent in all of this? How do you think about that? Um, is it a meaningful category? Do you reimagine it? Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about panpsychism and morphic fields and consciousness as being a non-individual event as being something that, you know, sometimes comes into your skin silhouette, but then flows outwards. And I don't have an answer. I was raised by spiritual religious scholars. I have always had a kind of ascetic sensibility, a desire to study, you know, I worried away much of my life rereading being in time like five times and then like spent a year courting Kierkegaard that was like mm. deeply unfulfilling. Um, <laughs> and so I've always sought to take off. I've always sought those experiences that feel like evaporation and I am attracted to them. And I do think that there is something about them that is important. But for me, it's about tying them. I think the transcendent is problematic when you don't see it as a process that is also going to end on the ground. And you know that's why spores and spores as being connected to the creation of clouds, they cloud seed, and the creation of whole weather systems that then actually facilitate the conditions for the mycorrhizal systems to flourish and then fruitifus mushroom, that spore again, which is, I think of transcendence as perhaps being an important experience for a consciousness to have on its way back into the ground to melt and to ferment. And I think that when we spend too much time in those heady spaces without realizing that we need to keep moving along the virtuous cycle of decay and refruit, that it becomes a problem. Mm. So it's always, it's about querying the idea of progression or of splits and of seeing it all on a continuum where you also have to come back down. You have to, you can ascend, but you also have to descend. Yeah, no. And that's actually, I'm not sure if you're interested in Ken Wilber's work at all, but that whole idea of ascending. Tiny descending, all, yeah. yeah. Um, he does a good job of sort of driving that point home that, you know, the kind of history of, of these ideas, particularly in the West has been so much about sort of ascenders versus descenders. And usually it's a deeply antagonistic relationship. But when you reframe it as being more like, you know, the weather cycle or something, right, that there's something about, you know, evaporation, there's some value to that. And there's the value yeah. in, in the descent and that all of that is sort of part of a broader ecology, rather than just privileging one direction over the other. And so a lot of what you're talking about in terms of this sort of would you call it a form of animism? Is that is that a, a, a fair? Yeah, yeah. I, I call myself a neo troubadour animist, <laughs> okay. you know, with a, a propensity to turn everything into a love story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm interested in an animism that's about patchy differences, about beings that sometimes kill each other, sometimes make love, sometimes meld. Some, you know, that it's those gradients. It's those 
those shift spots that actually create the fertile ground yeah. for new things to arrive. Yeah. And I, I, I'm very troubled by these white light universalized, you know, we all need to be one, you know, when everyone believes in peace, like no one's ever, you know, there's always going to be a chaotic actor, you know, you kind of need them for a good story. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah. Well, so then my, my question is sort of, if you are kind of working with the idea of animism, how do you square that? Or is it a neo-animism? Because I see a lot of interest returning to these topics and some of the yeah. names that you mentioned early on are like doing great work in that yeah. domain. Um, but I feel like there's also a potential danger in saying all that white light stuff is, you know, problematic for all the reasons that we're talking about. Let's root ourselves and focus on the animistic approach. And I feel like that too is not without its pitfalls. One of the most striking ones for me is the sort of loss of meaningful distinctions where there can be a kind of potentially problematic or pathological naive literalism that goes into thinking in an animistic way, whether like, oh, there's, there's a spirit in this stone and then therefore that needs to influence my behavior in a certain way that could really impinge on all sorts of, you know, ways that I'm an autonomous being and whatnot. And so I guess my question is like, when you talk about animism, are there distinctions that you're, that you would make between how that term might be applied in like a strict anthropological sense and kind of what you're advocating for? Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think animism is going to fruit differently in every person that identifies with it as a term. You know, it maybe it all comes from the same mycelium underground, but it's going to be a mushroom in a very specific way in a very specific patch of soil. I think for me, the really important thing is to not try to convert people to what I believe, but to create openings where we can ferment things together. And I do believe that all of my thinking happens interstitially between me and other people. And for me, it's, I don't want other people to think like me. And I don't want other beings to think like me. And I think that there's a kind of animism that's saying, I understand everything. That because everything is alive and I'm being so tender about it, that makes me special. And I think animacy is a much rawer, more complicated, anarchic thing. And as someone who has had health issues, that is something I've experienced inside my body and something that I've had to grapple with somatically, which is, you know, I've had viruses and bacteria move through me in a way that could have killed me. And I respect them, but I don't respect them in a way that makes me want to make eye contact with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that there's an animism, that there's a preciousness of saying that being alive, you know, I think about, you know, what is it like to be a bat by Thomas Nagel? Like, you know, the aliveness of something else is not necessarily going to be like my aliveness and my inability to totally know that is important to keep in mind. So to keep asking questions, I think my animism is interrogative, that my model is actually Parsifal from Wolfram Den Eschenbach's Parsifal, which is, you know, turning to the Grail King and saying, what ails thee? So I'm constantly trying to like ask like what I'm inside of, whatever ecosystem I'm inside of, like what's going on here? I mean, for example, I try and ask permission and not in a cute way, in a like deeply apprehensive way of places I'm going if I'm allowed to go there. Because I've had experiences. I went, I remember I went to this, basically a park that human beings are not supposed to be in. I trespassed with a bunch of teenagers and um, really, really beautiful, wild, almost felt like prehistoric landscape. And the second we got onto it, I had this like deep somatic skin prickling feeling that like, I'm not allowed to be here. Like, you know, 
that's not like animism of a stone. That's like a presence, a field that I could feel that didn't want me there. And I didn't honor it. And I experienced one of the worst injuries of my life and almost died. And it took me months to recover. It's a long story, but basically it ended with me opening up an artery in my foot, destroying my foot, having my friend have had to tourniquet me and like carry me on his back over barbed wire fences. And then I got a septic infection from that. And it was like, okay, now I have to really understand that the world is alive and not in a rainbow, psychedelic, ecodelic kind of sexy way. It's alive in a bumptious, totally inscrutable way. Mm. Now, yeah, that inscrutability was sort of my next question. I mean, it's like, you know, if you embrace that sort of a perspective, right, then I feel like there's also the degree to which, you know, once you start bringing critical reflection to bear on the perspective, you start asking questions, well, how can this be so? And, and what is this? You know, I, yeah. <laughs> and so, so then th- these are the areas where I find these things really interesting because it, it's where, you know, maybe these ideas engage with critical reflection and rather than just being shot down by that reflection are strengthened and are able to kind of pass through that refining fire and are being, you know, made more robust through that process, which again, is I think something very important about any kind of spirituality that's going to be worth its salt. I think these days needs to be, you know, able to do that and not just shy away from those critical inquiries, but be able to. And so then the question is, well, you know, how do we understand things like that? You know, what does that mean? This And so basically all the writing I've been doing is trying to like use modern science as a way into these stories, you know, looking at quantum physics, looking at morphic fields, looking at symbiogenesis and mutualisms, looking at integrated information theory and testing all of these things, kind of holding them up against my experiences and being like, does this fit? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I think for me, it's really not about arriving at answers. It's about living between these stories and between these places. But I agree with you. I think, I think whenever you believe in something to the exclusion of other modes of inquiry, you are stopping evolving and that the process needs to be up. You need to be constantly updating and adapting and taking in new information. And I think that because science has been so maligned, and so reduced to this weird, almost theology that, you know, is blocked by a paywall. You can't even read the articles. People don't want to include it into these conversations, but that's what I want to do. I want to create new kinds Mm. of scientific storytelling. And I think there are a couple of writers that have been, and scientists that have been doing this and have been talking about scientific studies in a more poetic, lyrical, open-ended way. Mm -hmm. Speaking of animism and all these topics. I'd love it if you would read one of your yeah, pieces sure. just so that people really get a sense of, yeah. of your style and, and what sort of stuff. So yeah, there is this work that you wrote, The Animate Everything, and I'll just sit back and take it in. Okay. The Animate Everything. The crow beats its wings with such rapidity that they ripple into liquid. Sunlight streaks across the dawn sky, warp through the wind's weft, weaving a tapestry of breath, pollen, smoke from forest fires a whole country away, carbon excreted as saccharine heat from a hummingbird, dull threads of exhaust braided into a heron's exhalations. Smoke has turned the sun flat and red as the sun drawn by a child with a crayon. The sky is the blue of accumulation, layer after layer of pollution, smog, pollen, refracted light, and reproductive matter. 
spores, pheromones, funk. And sitting on the hill overlooking where the Rondout Creek pours itself into the Hudson River, I think of the words of the Chilean poet Raul Zorita, writing after his torture at the hands of Pinochet's military dictatorship. Life is very beautiful, even now. Life is soup. Life is compost. Life is contaminated. And life is very alive. I glance from the sky down to my toes, tucked into the fine ashy dirt, and spot a spider, a tumbleweed of silver wire glittering against my foot. And below that are the mycorrhizal threads weaving together the locust trees, the rustle of mushrooms, and the ghost pipe, the grass with the trees, and fleshing the soil itself so that it can hold steady when the rains slide out of the smog-swollen sky. Deeper still is the underworld biosphere of carbon constituted by archaea and bacteria and fungi. Woven into the soil's microbiome are the blood of the Muncie their stories all but erased, who lived here next to the river continuously for thousands of years before the genocidal Dutch and French arrived. I reach down and pinch the dirt, inhale its waxy, mildewed perfume. No, divine feminine or divine masculine won't do, God won't do, neither will a homogenized universalism. This dawn is unruly and textured. There are yellow jackets already looping through the clover, gorgeous from a distance and deadly to my immune system close up. Even the bacteria carefully cushioned in my gut are precarious. One internal shift and it could poison my blood. Everything is connected to something, but not everything is connected to everything. The differences are vital. The smoke that coats my tongue does not belong to me. It is a communication from somewhere else, a molecular signaling interrogation. The miracle isn't that everything is the same, infused with some pearly universal source, but that everything is being, being differently, being chaotically. Panpsychism is the Eurocentric academic idea of what indigenous cultures have long believed. Consciousness is inherent in all matter. There are various ideas of what consciousness is. Thinking and experiencing are differentiated. Does proto-consciousness exist in elementary particles, slowly accumulating into emergent minds like human brains? As Alfred North Whitehead proposed, is mentality inherent in the elements coalescing as an animate event that can then similarly slump back into the thwarted energy of inanimate beings? A squirrel drops a hickory nut on my head. Somewhere a dog is barking. An ambulance is drawing its long, nervous song through the empty morning streets. Someone is dying. Someone is melting out of being a someone into a patchy, heterogeneous everything. Is that death? Is that inanimate? It seems to me that when someone dies, their body becomes even more alive. An aliveness that is plural, polyphonous. Suddenly an ecosystem of bacteria and fungi and beetles and beings eating, decaying, breaking down, making soil, making connections. Today, it doesn't matter whether or not I can prove how alive the world is. It doesn't matter if I can prove an electron is having an experience. What matters is that I can feel stories everywhere, stories that don't depend on language, stories that don't depend on singularity, stories that only occur interstitially between beings in the fertile friction-prickled boundaries between differences. It is the differences that seem crucial. Without difference, there is no conversation. There is no need for the tender questions that catalyze storytelling and generate landscapes. 
The gradient of the mountain allows the snowmelt and rain to braid into a stream that interrogatively carves and curves down through stone into the valley. The difference between the summit and the valley creates this nourishing thread of water that will irrigate the fields, fill the rock pools, wake up leathery lichen on the side of a stone thrown awkwardly in a field millions of years before by a glacier. The curiosity of a hyphae probing into unfamiliar soil and dead wood is what will make the soil that supports a forest. Audre Lorde writes in her essay, The Master's Tools, Within the interdependence of mutual non-dominant differences lies that security which enables us to descend into the chaos of knowledge and return with true visions of our future, along with the concomitant power to affect those changes which can bring that future into being. Difference is that raw and powerful connection from which our personal power is forged. When I think of what I believe in, it is closest to a form of animism, but it is an animism of chaotic difference, of woven contamination. It is an understanding that just because I am alive does not mean I should assume that the aliveness of the hill or the river or the wild roses is the same flavor as my aliveness. Knowing that a stone is alive keeps me alive, and knowing that a stone is alive differently than me keeps me asking questions, keeps me humble and curious and available to surprise. I believe in the animate everything, the differences that sting and prick and destroy and generate, and sometimes weave together to create a dense, polluted, gorgeous periwinkle sky. Thanks. Thank you. That was gorgeous. And for me, as you're as you're reading and you're and the words are sort of cascading over, I, I get this sense of uh, chaos in the kind of sublime sense, right? Um, yeah. And I'm I'm most curious in this context, I suppose, in sort of you know, there's there are those lines where you say something like divine feminine, you know, divine masculine won't do, God won't do. What do you call that then? What what you're gesturing towards, what you're sort of painting, you know, do you have a name for that? Well, in this essay, I called it because I needed a title, the animate everything. Mm. And sometimes when, you know, I for a while would call it the more than human world. And I don't love that term. It really kind of reifies that sense of us being different than the world rather than braided into it and interactive with it. I'm much more interested in Karen Barad's idea of space-time mattering, (laughs) that nothing is separate, that we're all kind of constituting each other and penetrating each other constantly. Um, I call it different things on different days. And I think that's actually the one thing I believe is to change, change your mind every day, change what you call something every day, update, be flexible, hold something without deciding what it is. You know, be careful not to name something too quickly. I haven't named it. Hmm. It has no name. I guess that's also uh, its own form of sacralization as, you know, the care around say the tetragrammaton and things of that nature, you know? Um, So there's certainly even a sacramental history around the unnaming of God or the unknowable (laughs) God. Um, I'm interested too, though, because how would you characterize those who do seek for the big picture for some uh, overarching, you know, abstraction that can somehow encompass and embrace the kind of complexity and chaos that you're talking about. It's almost like you could say you're talking about all these instantiations and and individual expressions of something, but you can also think about 
the form, you know, almost in a platonic sense, if there's a platonic form of chaos, right, or something like that. Do you think that there's a place for that sort of universalizing way of thinking for that that grand abstraction? Um, or do you think that it's just kind of will always be kind of inherently over-totalizing and thus totalitarian and maybe destructive then because of that? I think that there are a very simplistic way of describing it is there are relationships we have in our life, there are romantic partnerships we have in our life that are crucial to our development. And we have to believe that they're going to last forever. And then they break down and we needed them. (laughs) And I think that there are certain impulses and interrogations that can only happen when we're looking for that grand unifying theory. So I think that there is something generative about trying to find these unifying theories, but that the kind of promissory note of saying, we're definitely going to find it out. You know, Rupert Sheldrake calls it like, you know, we just write these, these notes saying like, oh yeah, definitely. We'll figure that out. I think that's problematic, but I do think that very interesting discoveries can be made when we are looking at whole systems and trying to understand how things are, how emergent behaviors happen through these complex intertanglements. Yeah. I also wonder too about the differences between people's, whatever you want to call it, temperaments. You know, I I know folks for whom these ideas about exploding complexity and interpenetration of all beings and stuff like that. And like the, the lack of a, you know, real coherent boundary and, and story or ultimate story and all that stuff is just scary and confusing. Right. And so I feel like part of this is that pragmatist, I guess, coming yeah. back for me and being like, how, how can we, or what value is there in maybe seeking ways to communicate these ideas or the, the upshot of these ideas in a language that can, that can be, appreciated by, you know, folks who don't necessarily grok the whole, you know, (laughs) animate everything. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question because when storytelling was oral, it was adaptive and you were going to change it to suit different audiences. I mean, Mm -hmm. Shakespeare was like really playing to a lower class audience coming who wanted body jokes that were about the political climate at the time, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that the violence of something like the Bible is that it doesn't change. It doesn't adapt to different people with different sensibilities. So yeah, I think that there's a real merit in thinking about how to best articulate these things in different contexts. And I think they're going to be different storytellers for different groups of people. I think that we don't want a monologue. I'm definitely connecting with a certain group of people, but someone else is going to have the terminology, the flavor, the vocabulary that really plugs in to people who need a different kaleidoscopic view. So I kind of want to invite many people into these inquiries so that there are many different things you can order off the menu. Pretending that one meal is going to satisfy everyone does not work. And yeah, we all have our different ecological niches. You know, we all have our different places we need to go, things that we love, ways that we talk. And I am, I do struggle. Here's something that I think is really crucial. I understand wanting to understand everything. And as someone who's survived really intense trauma, I understand wanting to not believe in a chaotic, penetrative universe. (laughs) So I'm deeply sympathetic to people who want an ordered, rational, reductionist experience. I get it, totally. Um, So I I do have a lot of empathy. And hopefully that empathy will eventually lead to writing that communicates. It hasn't yet. 
yeah, there's the the reductive, you know, approach that you mentioned, but there's also an approach for, I mean, would it be disconcerting to you if someone read your work and took it to mean essentially that, yeah, there are spirits in the woods and that some of them might, you know, like try to gobble them up and it made them very kind of fearful and anxious and they didn't go in certain woods and they didn't do certain things that, you know, like there are ways of engaging with animist sensibilities that, as I kind of intimated earlier, can kind of create certain, I think, maybe pathological responses. Or like, you know, if I'm trying to curse someone or I feel like some curse has been labeled at me or things like that. But like, I feel like that these ideas could be sort of assimilated without a lot of that nuance in in the complexity, right? And then miss something really crucial. And I guess I'm interested in the ways that, that these sorts of narratives can be you know, communicated to different audiences in different ways in a way that will land and the meaningful stuff gets across. Well, I think the one thing I'll share is, you know, I'm probably going to die before you. (laughs) I could die tomorrow. I've had NDEs and I was trying to be a really elegant thinker. You know, I'm really prized intellectualism and literary style. And, you know, I never shared my writing with anyone, but I could die tomorrow. It feels extraordinarily Mm. real. I have Mm. a heart that's getting lazier every day. Storytelling is an emergency. Ecological collapse is an emergency. The ways we do this are going to be clumsy. But if we don't do it, we don't do it. And I think that that, for me, it was very out of character to start sharing writing publicly. It's not what I do. I usually really revise super intensely get other readers. I mean, I, I, I like polish this stuff. And when I started just sharing it, I was like, this is insane. And I started actually connecting with people. I started selling my work. It started to move. And I started to communicate with big groups of people who said that it changed the way they were embodied in their ecosystem. So people are going to misunderstand me. I mean, Amanda Palmer says like the worst people are your best fans. Like, you know, <laughs> the people who most misunderstand your work are the people who love it the most. So I, yeah, totally. I think someone can always misunderstand your work. And yeah, I love, and I think it's important to go into comments, look at arguments that people have, be like, okay, how does that sit with me? How can I respond to that? I should be able to, but also to know that you can't control it all and that you aren't for everyone. I mean, that story that I told earlier, I've never written down because I don't want to make people afraid of the woods. People can be afraid of other people. I always say, like, be afraid of other people, but don't be afraid of the environment. Um, well, and also to clarify, I meant it more in a general sense. I don't think yeah. there's, for the record, I don't think there's anything in your work that is, um, you know, uh, like dangerously prone to be misinterpreted. I think, I think just the sheer, you know, amount of complexity and nuance that you bring to it sort of is uh, self-selecting for, you know, a certain audience. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking more just in terms of, in the context of trying to, as you say, I love this storytelling is an emergency and I completely Mm -hmm. agree with that. And as you say, you know, storytelling used to be highly contextual and highly sort of audience based, audience oriented. And as I see the need for this kind of storytelling that you're doing and the kinds of, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of this mythological framework, I think a lot about that and I consider how these things might be communicated to as broad an audience as possible because it is so urgently needed. So that was what I was getting at there, though. I, I am really intrigued and, and curious because, you know, you mentioned death and I wonder, you know, in your work, as you say, like, you know, you talk about a dead body being more, more alive and, and sort of part of, of everything. And I'm curious how 
these ideas and, and the work that you've been doing have impacted your views about death and dying and, and your whole view on what it means to make these sort of passages between and through and into the world and all the ways that is really at the heart of this sort of beautiful, sublime chaos that we're all engaged in. Yeah, I mean, I think the work arrives from a real sense of not having, not seeing a story forward, not being able to understand what's happening to me, what's happening to my body, and what it could mean. So the work is is a survival attempt. It's a kind of Scheherazade and like, how can I stay alive for one more night, one more day? How can I write something that could help someone else, but also could help me understand this more? I think you know, the Homeric traditions, the Orphic hymns, authorship is not being important. Stories and, you know, storytellers as being something you stepped into that, you know, there are many different Homers, many different Orpheuses. The thing that I always try to remind myself is I'm trying to create enough good soil that other people could plant things in it that, you know, I to come. Yeah, no. And I I don't want to become some cult of personality. I want to create enough And I think that's why I'm so maximalist. Like, I just want to include as many words or ideas as possible. That's kind of what my house is like, too. So, like, that's just my sensibility. But I want to include enough ferment that, you know, maybe some good wine could come out of it. But not when I'm alive, you know. And I think we're so fixated on humans surviving and on me surviving and on my ideas surviving that we stop thinking about that long, deep time story. Like, okay. I've written down all the things that I think are important. Maybe someone else will take them over. Yeah. There's something so Whitman-esque about everything that you just said for me. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, no, but, but really though, I mean, you know, that containing multitudes and seeking, you know, others to kind of carry on that inclusivity and that kind of maximal, you know, this kind of, yeah, seething population of different voices and realities and, and experiences. And in terms of our individual experiences, you know, becoming depersonalized and sort of then our constituent parts kind of becoming collectivized in death. Is there a way that that itself is a kind of a myth that can provide, if not solace, but at least an orientation that's meaningful? How would you think about what you're talking about in terms of telling a kind of thanatological mythology or a a myth of what it means to be alive and to pass like what what does that mean in this in this sublime animate everything chaos (laughs) well that's a simple question (laughs) um i think that you know if we think so much about where we go when we die why don't we think about where we came from (laughs) (laughs) you know, we're emerging from somewhere, we're going into somewhere. And we don't really have a lot of tools to talk about that. And we're so focused on the arrow of time that we forget about, you know, the other end of the arrow. (laughs) And so I think that, for me, I think of time as an embrace, and of death as just being that kind of aroboros, you know, planting you back into the matrix. And maybe that's the soil, I don't know what it is. So I think for me, the way this paradigm helps me think is I don't think my aliveness is going to end but I think it might become granular (laughs) Mm. and I think that actually something important is that the work doesn't end whatever the work is I mean I personally in a very cliche way I've so I've had NDEs I mean people who come back usually say like yo it was it was intense they said did you love enough 
<laughs> you know, that's one of the themes. And it's true. Like when you have these bottleneck moments, it's not these like super complex questions. It's like, did you love? <laughs> did you make good on your wrongs? And I think that if we extend our idea of life into the soil, if we think of becoming good soil, rather than just, you know, our life ending when we die, it makes us live more deeply. Mm -hmm. But this is definitely not a pat answer. I don't think I have an answer. And as someone who grapples with death all the time, I don't know. I would like to think that I'm, I'm going to be becoming more of something. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, another frequently attested experience is sort of that return to source of whatever that, that is. And it's, you know, using these different archetypal sorts of framings of these things. Yes, the ground is a source, right? But there's also, this is where that ascendant descendant thing kind of comes back in, right? And there's like, you know, if I could choose, right? Like if where I end up, is that going to be good earth? Or is that going to be, you know, transcendent white light, you know? Here's the crazy part. So I'm a person who feels very deeply, I struggle with embodiment. Like I don't want to be in my body. I want to be in my head. So it's like, you know, I struggle with it, but I do always like think that the body and embodiment and this kind of imminence is important. But when I've had these experiences, I've ascended. (laughs) Hmm. So yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happens to us, but I do think that the story is longer than we think it is longer and perhaps more sometimes I think of each life as perhaps being like you have a giant ocean of soup and you know a single life is someone goes in and takes out a bowl of soup and then at the end you get poured back in and next time you come out you're a little bit of the same soup you're some other soup you know (laughs) life is soup primordial soup primordial soup yeah I love it if you want if you're down for it there's another piece sure um What about confessions of a compost heap? Perfect. (laughs) Okay. Confessions of a compost heap. And so from hour to hour, we ripe and ripe. And then from hour to hour, we rot and rot. And thereby hangs a tale. Laments the melancholy Jack Weeze in Shakespeare's comedy, As You Like It, hinting at something the playwright understood intimately. Disorder and decay are just as crucial to a narrative as are order and fecundity. The story does not exist in a single pole of experience, but is articulated between ripeness and rot. The tragic play flows from fertility into rot, while the comedy reverses the causality, sprouting ripeness from initial decay. This question was looping in my head in the doctor's office. She was the main expert of my genetic condition, and without much grace, she was explaining to me the predictable course of my body's disintegration. Okay, you need a surgeon to look at your neck because your skull is essentially collapsing into your spine. Not that surgeries are very effective. And with your lung functioning being what it is, we can expect your heart to begin to feel the effects. So we need to get you back to the cardiologist. I could feel myself start to disassociate. My hands were tingling. I felt my being condense into a nucleus of intensity between my eyes. The doctor's voice was glitching, moving up in pitch until it was too high for me to even hear. And then from hour to hour, we rot and rot, I thought, staring down at the pronounced veins in my hands that the doctor had informed me were a typical expression of connective tissue disease. My skin was too soft. My bones didn't want to stay in a solid shape. My heart was growing lazy. I was melting. I was breaking down. I imagined myself amorphous as a compost heap. And instead of talking, the doctor was circling me, pouring in water, 
tossing in a handful of salad greens, pulling out a worm, inspecting it with pleasure, every once in a while taking a trowel and flipping some of my moist soil. You're moving along well, I imagined her congratulating me. You're past the thermophilic phase and fully maturing. I'm seeing a lot of earthworms, a lot of millipedes. This is really good news. Evidence of intentional composting goes back as far as 12,000 years ago in Scotland, when fields filled with manure and human excrement were used to plant crops. There are examples of recycled organic waste for agricultural purposes in ancient India, China, and across the Middle East. The first written tract about composting can be found in a set of clay tablets dating back to King Sargon's reign during the Akkadian dynasty. In Egypt, composting was so esteemed that Cleopatra declared the compost heap's hero, the worm, sacred. And in 160 BCE, the retired Roman general Cato the Elder wrote instructions on best practices for composting in his agricultural tract, the Agricultura. Composting is the process whereby plant and food waste decompose into a rich, nutritious soil filled with fungi, bacteria, organisms, the soil produced from composting creates nutritious and vibrant matrix for agricultural planting with the added benefit that it also produces compounds that kill off and suppress pathogens that could harm crops. Greens and browns are the main ingredients. Greens are characterized as being rich in nitrogen, moldy leaves, mowed grass, table scraps. Browns are richer in carbon, stalks, woody material, paper, the process is easy enough. Add water, put outside, let the heat, the moisture, the spores, and pollen diffuse through the air do their jobs. Of course, you can be more precise about it, shredding matter to increase surface area and aerating the pile, but decay is a process that winks playfully at human control. Even the attempt to create an ingredient list is a modern innovation as demonstrated by the anarchic fields of the ancient Scots. Human and animal excrement combined with discarded food and plant waste provided an alchemical mix that needed little organization. The most important work is done by a decidedly inhuman force, or perhaps it's very human, given that our bodies are composed of more bacterial cells than human cells. Fungi, bacteria, insects, these decomposers turn a compost heap into a web of appetites, chewing through waste, excreting nutrients, Producing heat that further encourages the decay process, a heap of inert matter is soon a pulsing, humming, sweating community of creation. What then is decay? Watching a compost heap transform into fertile soil, it can seem like decay is genesis. Decay is the first scene in a comedy of mycelial threads and millipedes and sprouting wildflowers, seeds invisibly deposited by a bird flying overhead. Sometimes I think about death as being the transition from a solitary aliveness to an anarchic polyphony of aliveness. Years ago, a deer hit by a car managed to struggle into the woods at the periphery of my parents' property where it died. It was high summer, frying pan hot, the peeling birch bark almost crisping into cinders under unrelenting sunshine. Day after day, I would visit the carcass and watch as one life melted into a riot of lives, worms, ants, maggots, beetles, mushrooms. Death was the moment when life overflowed its cup. It wasn't the end. It was the end of the singular. The deer decayed out of its shape into explosive generative plurality. One narrative diverged into 400 narratives. Some days I asked myself tenderly, curiously, what is happening to me? What is happening to this self, this body? I never returned to that doctor despite her prestige. I felt her prognosis was a bad story, a story I didn't want to hear and didn't want to tell. 
I know that words are spells and every day I wake up and tell a different story about what health and vitality and miracles are available to me. But it is also important to honor what often bodily intimately feels like a slow decay. When old diets, herbs, physical therapy routines no longer work, it can feel like I'm melting. When a holiday passes and I'm reminded to look back at myself, I can suddenly see for a moment how much has changed physically. Am I decaying? Well, yes. But decay is always a day, a microbe, a rootlet away from sprouting. Maybe I'm losing touch with a self and melting into a more than human mind. I look at Shakespeare's catalog of plays. Every comedy begins with strife and breakdown. Every tragedy begins with health and well-being. If you played any narrative out longer, it would tip into its opposite. As Shakespeare's Jacquees notes, it is between the ripe and the rot that thereby hangs a tale. If I feel myself like the compost heap beginning to melt, it means then that I am melting into another story, a bigger story, a wider cast of characters. Let me dance between ripe and rot. I don't know what act in the play comes next, but I know what my prayer is. Make me bigger than an eye. Make me good soil. Wow. Thank you. You are an incredible storyteller in so many different modes and at so many different levels of depth. And so I thank you for that. And I thank you for sharing your stuff and, and your work and, and your time for, for sitting down and having some conversation about these things. I can tell there's, you know, because of that depth, there's so much more we could talk about. And thank you so much. Thank you so much.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Na, 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 na